podcast is presented as entertainment, not flight instruction. Though some participants are certified flight instructors, their comments, opinions, and discussions of flying techniques are theirs alone. None of the co-hosts or guests on this podcast are acting as your flight instructor. Please consult your own CFI for guidance on your specific flight training, aeronautical knowledge, and aircraft operation. This is the Stuck Mike Avcast, an aviation podcast about learning to fly, living to fly, and loving to fly. Episode 249, The Real Cost of Airplane Ownership and Some Creative Options to Owning, coming up next in this episode of the Stuck Mike Avcast. Now here are your co-hosts, Victoria Newville, Eric Crump, Larry Overstreet, Russ Rosleski, Tom Frick, Rick Felty, and Carl Valeri. Welcome to the show about learning to fly, living to fly, and loving to fly. Recently uh, returned the plane that I owned to the person I was leasing it from, and now I'm between planes. Uh, a little bummed out, but uh, excited about the new adventure. You know, basically putting all those emotions aside, I really want to reflect on the real cost of ownership and. Uh, and also how we can kind of go around the ownership and own, feel like an owner in many different creative ways. So we're going to come up with some really cool things here. That'll be coming up here next. But first, let me say hello to all of our co-hosts. Uh, we have uh, from up north, and we'll start up there, and I'm going to try to do this in order. If in my mind, I do it right. It's going to be Rick Felty. Hey, Rick, how you doing, my friend? Hey there. How's it going? Doing wonderful. Sorry, sorry, I've been gone for a while, but I'm glad to be back. No, it's wonderful to have you back, Rick. And uh, also coming down the coast, and I hope my geography is correct. I'm probably going to mess this up. Is uh, Bill English? Bill, how you doing? No, you messed it up, but that's okay. I'm doing great. Uh, oh. I'm happy here at the at the at the cow pasture. Yeah, yeah. The it's not the avocado ranch. It's the cow no. pasture right now. And I had totally right. jumped over. Who'd I jump over? Victoria. Hey, Victoria. Good. Jeez, <laughs> how dare you jump <laughs> over me? No, that's that's my poor geography coming in there. That's that's the problem. Well, but. and I just missed Bill today, apparently. Oh wow. So, sorry, Bill. <laughs> that's okay. So, and we know it's about a 230 degree heading from you to me. Yes. <laughs> Someday we'll meet up. All right. Uh, and also, if we head out to the west, I'm obviously down south right now. We'll be up north tomorrow, uh, flying right into this. I think it's a tropical for, uh, storm up in that way. Heading out west, though, is Sean Moody. Hey, Sean, great to hear you on. Hey, yeah, good to be here. Nice and hot here out in the mountain west. And then moving back towards the, the middle of the country uh, is Russ Rosleski. Hey, Russ, how you doing, my friend? I am doing great, Carl. Your Your knowledge of geography is... Interesting. Is outstanding. Yeah, <laughs> outstanding. <laughs> but, so we're we're not gonna we're, we did definitely didn't go in order there, but uh, but I did try. Hey, that's for sure. Thank goodness for GPS. Oh my God, flying the magenta line. Thank God for that. That's for sure. But uh, anyway, before we start, let's move on to the uh, pre-flight checklist. First, a quick word from our sponsor. The sponsor of this episode is PlainEnglishSim.com. It's an app-based aviation radio simulator. We've talked about it before. And uh, if you use this coupon code, by the way, they've given, they're giving away 10 scholarships guide. Use a coupon code PlainEnglishSim to receive a free scholarships guide courtesy of 
plainenglishsim.com. Uh, coupons are limited. Of course, I said there's 10. They're, they keep adding more. So we're just so happy that they're sponsoring us and also uh, the Scholarships Guide. And you can find that Scholarships Guide at uh, aviationcareerspodcast.com slash scholarships. We're up to about $69 million in scholarships listed, and we're adding more every single day. So check that out. Check out plainenglishsim.com. If you're somebody that's looking into radio communications, either it's not your native language, language being English, or if uh, you're getting into IFR training, they're starting to do an IFR app, I would really highly recommend you're checking that out at plainenglishsim.com. So let's move on to the cruise flight. Now entering cruise flight. Well, a couple things uh, have happened. First of all, I know a lot of us aren't flying, and I've mentioned that you know I haven't been current uh, multi-engine for a while. So last week I was able to get uh, my multi-engine currency, and that was a lot of fun. I really enjoyed it. Uh, didn't uh, I've been single-engine current for a while now. I got that with uh, both. Let's see, Bill. I think you and I uh, went up and uh, got some currency there, and also with my friend Matt. So I was very excited about that. But it uh, so now I can fly everything that I'm rated for, and uh, excited to move on for with some more flying. Also. Another thing I wanted to do a quick update before we move into our, to our topic. I think uh, I overheard or I listened to the last podcast and I forgot. Uh, Russ had asked me a question and I think I kind of glossed over this. He asked me about uh, the climb gradient and if I had a rule of thumb. And there is a rule of thumb I use and I just realized I didn't mention that. It's basically your ground speed and you divide it by 60, you know, by minutes. So if you had a, like a climb gradient of, say, 200, 50 feet per nautical mile uh, and you're doing like a 60 knot ground speed you divide that 60 by 60 you come up with one and then you multiply that one times the climb gradient of what i just said 200 feet per nautical mile that comes up with 200 feet per minute so say you're going at 90 knots and uh, ground speed you divide by 60 that's 1.5 you multiply by say that same 200 feet per nautical mile like we used in that example in the past episode that's going to give you 300 feet per minute you want to see as far as your climb uh so just wanted to kind of tell that uh i want to you know really clarify that and you can go back and listen to that in one of the past episodes hope you're also enjoying the 737 different uh, podcasts we're doing as far as the 737 Max. We have an expert on the 737 Max that's been coming on, Justin Ash, and uh, we also have somebody who's uh, had quite a bit of training in it and done some extensive research. A lot of things we can learn as general aviation pilots from uh, what has transpired with that uh, aircraft. Anyway, let's move on to what we're talking about today, and that's actually the real cost of ownership and, and also some creative options to owning an aircraft. And one of the things that just recently happened, I think I kind of talked about a little bit, is I, I said goodbye to my Cherokee, and uh, we're on to the next adventure. It actually was an uh, airplane that was on leaseback, so there is another option. You know, I own a business, it was on leaseback, and uh, we were looking at putting it as a rental, but it actually, the real reason we got, and people ask me this, why we got rid of it, is the uh, dispatch reliability was really low. So what does that mean? In other words, it was in maintenance a lot more than actually we were flying it. So in a situation where it's your own personal plane, that may not be too bad. Um, but if it's a situation where you're trying to make money with it, yeah, that can be uh, quite a bit of a challenge there. So uh, anyway, so but I, I'd have to say I in the beginning I said we're putting emotions aside, but, you know, who are we kidding? I do miss the days of hanging out in the hangar and washing and waxing the plane and hanging out with my buddies. And uh, interestingly enough, uh, one of the things that came to fore is 
one of my neighbors looks at me and he says, hey, Carl, if you want, you can come visit us anytime and help us wash the airplane. I was like, oh, thanks. Uh, not sure if that was a good thing or not. Yeah, I think it was. <laughs> so we were very excited to still have friends at the airport and be able to go out there and play with an airplane. It's really different um, owning an airplane. And if uh, there's other folks on here that have actually, and I didn't really ask this question if anybody has owned their own airplane before, but it, you do, amazingly enough, you get this kind of an emotional tie to it. It's, uh, I don't know, I can't, I'm trying to relate it like maybe to almost uh, somebody who has a car or something uh, like that where you, you're just, it, it's uh, part of the family almost, almost like a pet, I guess. Uh, but it really, I, I didn't expect this, to be honest with you. I really kind of felt, not, I wouldn't say a sense of loss. It was like a week later, I was like, oh, where's, where's my airplane, you know? And I kind of miss it. Uh, so, Russ, I think you're, you actually own an airplane. Is that correct? I did. Uh, I owned a Warrior for about eleven years, uh, eight or nine hundred hours in it, I think. And uh, and you're right; it became just this part of the family. I mean, I had I, I had been in the military for part of my time with this, so I had, it had moved with me, you know, to numerous different states and locations, flown all over the country, and um, it, it was. It was sad to see it go, but uh, I mean, we can talk about reasons, I guess, later that you would need to, you know, sell an airplane. But, uh, but yeah, you're absolutely right. There, there is, there is an emotional component. It, it may just be a, uh, you know, a, a collection of you know metal and rubber parts and such, but it kind of takes on a life of its own sometimes. Yeah, we do get attached to those things uh, that are inanimate objects, like an airplane uh and so bill i think you had a, a small aircraft a, a cherokee right uh yeah i did um not not that different than yours a little newer um had one of those this was oh, quite a while ago back in uh up in new england and i uh, actually had partners on that as well it wasn't just mine but uh yeah same thing it becomes uh it, it definitely takes up a lot of your time and a lot of your life that's for sure yeah and but you get attached to it don't you Oh yeah, for sure. Um, I I could still uh, I can still even after all these years I could probably still remember exactly where everything is. And you know, by that we'll talk about some of the benefits of owning an airplane. You just you just named one of those actually. But one of the things I think we need to talk about because of the fact that there's so much lately going on on the internet. I'm not sure why. Maybe someone wrote an article. Uh, is a discussion about what's what's the real cost of ownership of an aircraft and I've been in clubs, partnerships, and I've also had this aircraft. And there's a lot I've learned about the ownership costs. And we've all learned, obviously, the, the other folks here that have owned. But there's other creative ways to feel like an owner. And even though you're not on the title, you're, you can still have that feeling of, of ownership, that type of thing. But I'm really, let's first dig into the one point here, and that's the real cost of ownership. And the the one part that I think, people don't realize on the real cost of ownership is all the other costs, the ancillary costs. Um, and we'll talk about insurance after that, but the ancillary costs are things like the hangar, you know, having to put the airplane in the hangar and, or a tie down. Maybe your tie downs are free. We don't know. I mean, there's, there's all ways around that, but that cost can vary tremendously especially where you're located so i've been i had a hangar at an airport in downtown tampa it was very expensive a little bit more on the insurance uh, but it also was something that 
was fun uh, and it was a neat place to be because we had this thing called Gasparilla and I could hang out in my hangar and watch the, the ships come in. Uh, but that cost is, is included. The hangar cost, there's also things like washing the airplane. And then there's the little things that are in your hangar that you don't realize. I, mean, I went through, oh my gosh, buying extension cords. I bought a, a blower. So instead of sweeping out the hangar, I blow out the hangar all the time. Uh, the refrigerator. Some people have a couch. I never got a couch, but I had all sorts of other things in there like a table, uh, places to put your stuff. So you have to buy things. It, it's like almost like, you know, moving into a house and putting furniture in there. And, and let's not forget the decorations. That's absolutely uh, important to remember is, is the decorations. And the other thing too is the beverages for the fridge. So one, and here's a little uh, tip, by the way, when you own a hangar and you tell everybody, especially your mechanics that, Hey, there's beer in the fridge. Uh, take as much as you want. You know, whenever you put the plane back at the end of the day, uh, make sure you're ready to restock that fridge. After you say that there was a lesson learned in this past one, because I would, I would come to the hangar and there would be a lot missing. <laughs> Not that there's anything wrong with that. I just, I made that offer, but I didn't realize that there's a cost associated with that. Uh, and other ancillary expenses, what other expenses are there? Like, uh, who else can come up? Like Russ, any ideas as far as other, I think you have one. Well, sure. Uh, you know, most aircraft, you know, you think, okay, I got to have a tow bar for it, you know, of the light aircraft we're talking about here. But, you know, some people want a little bit more than just a tow bar. You know, some of the planes are getting, you know, heavier or you got to push it up a hill. Well, how are you going to do it? You know, you get a, a little aircraft tug. You're going to use a, uh, you know, an old riding lawnmower. You know, I see a lot of those. You're going to get one of the purpose built, you know, little you know, remote control tank tread things that are fantastic, but also rather expensive. I mean, depending on how nice, nice you want to go you can buy you know something used for you know a couple hundred bucks or you can spend a couple thousand on just moving your plane around but that's a very important consideration you know uh, especially if like i said you, you got to push it up a little bit of a lip or maybe you're uh you know not as strong as you used to be let's put it that way i have a suggestion for that I just call the line guys and they help me out. <laughs> <laughs> That's always a good solution if that works for you. Yep. Oh, Victoria, you know, you brought up a great point there, by the way. Um, as far as the, the folks, the line folks, they actually, depending on where you are, they'll charge you to put the aircraft away, depending on the airport that you have your airplane at. And some won't even put it away for you and some have it included in the price. And uh, I know one of the places I used to fly out of, they would, I'd say, hey, put the plane away, tuck it away, lock it up, thank you. Uh, the other one was basically, yeah, we can't do that because our insurance requ requires three of our people to be around the airplane. Uh, so that's a, that's a good point, Victoria. And I, I didn't even think about that with the insurance either. I guess uh, everybody's insurance is different. Uh, but you are handling someone's airplane, and one little ding can be quite expensive, especially, you know, like a some hangar rash or, or a bulb or a, or a light or a nav light being, being busted, that type of thing. That's for sure. And I'm sure Victoria, you guys, they've had to pay out on a few of those in, in the insurance business. Oh yeah. I'll <laughs> go. So Bill, how a, about you? What, what, uh, yeah, we had a, sorry, we had a, um, a way to save a little money, but then you ran into that same exact thing. The, um, the Cherokee we had was, this was, I lived far farther north than uh, Victoria now, but up in New England. And um, we shared the hangar. It was a big Quonset hut style hangar with, I don't remember, four or five other different airplanes. Um, everybody had a spot to go into and everything. And we all had to be able to move the other folks' airplanes. But 
well, it saved money because we were splitting the hangar and you could leave some of your stuff in there, you know, tools and, and things like that. We did have to uh, always be working around the other folks and some of those were corporate airplanes in there. So you had to be able to either, you know, get our airplane out of the way or move somebody else's out properly and, uh, and be real careful with that. So it saves money on one end, but it adds a lot of work and, uh, and responsibility on the other end. Another thing to add to the plane, moving it back and forth, is some expenses and getting it over the lip, right? I mean, we talked about that and designing something where it could, you know, maybe you have tracks or something. Uh, some places you pushing it back in could be quite a challenge, pushing it back up. Especially in places with ice and snow. Oh, yeah. Yeah, pushing those around. And that's, uh, speaking of which, uh, let's talk about ancillary costs there. Say, let's get away from the hangar, but also talk about the fact that in ice and snow, now you have to buy yourself a heater or you have to rent one from somebody, and that's an, a big cost there. Maybe you have a blanket that you put over the aircraft, uh, de-ice fluid, that type of thing. Uh, I know you know, when I was flying up north in a club there, basically would put the planes out in the, you know, you know, we put them out in the sun, let them uh, kind of thaw out a little bit before we started scraping them off. Uh, so there's there's a quite a few uh, costs there. And also another thing is the fact that if you are in the snow and the ice, you have to add a little bit of time to what you're doing as far as, you know, costs are concerned. That might might run into some costs if you're, you're billing, someone's billing you by the hour, say an instructor, because a lot of folks, you know, like I've done flight training in my own airplane and I've given flight training in my own airplane. And that's actually some of the costs that are involved there, depending on how they charge per hour also those little things um like inside the airplane i'd love to hear feedback from other people the one biggie that i totally forgot about is um headsets headset i you know when you come to an airplane and you own an airplane everybody wants to go for a ride in that airplane so i'm wondering you know what do what do some of our other co-hosts do as far as your guest headsets? I, I'm, I don't really have one anymore. I finally, Oh, and I just bought a set, by the way, of Clarity Aloft. We really love the Clarity Aloft headsets. Um, both I use them for work and, and, and for my airplane. But it really it was surprising that the cost of headsets, I think, have gone up a little bit. And I was shocked when I had to go buy some extra ones. But does anybody else have any ideas as far as, you know, other headsets? I mean, do you guys go out and buy? Do you, did you have, actually, guest headsets? Like, Bill, when you had your plane, did you have a guest headset? I, yeah, we, we left a couple. I, when I owned that airplane, it was kind of before the days of our $900 noise-canceling headset. So, yeah, we just left a couple in the airplane all the time. So that that worked out and you know they they weren't the super fancy electronic ones so it wasn't very expensive so in the airplane you have to be able to have a place to put those so you can't just buy the headset you have to put a holder in there you have to have a container to put that in the the other thing is bags i found that's important to bring bags in your airplane and uh, bags that won't leak especially if you know something happens in the plane where you know someone might get sick or something like that that's important the other big item, and this is another expense I did not expect, and I, I can't believe it, I should have known this because I, you know, I had a garage and I worked on cars and stuff, is tools. Oh, my gosh. I, you can just go nuts on buying tools for the airplane and you know wrenches and screwdrivers and uh, everything that you can imagine uh, as far as tools for the plane. And, work, and I don't know if you guys, like, did you guys actually uh, – and your airplanes did you do any of your maintenance also either you know bill or or russ did you guys actually do the maintenance on your aircraft 
Well, I did uh, as much as I was allowed to, you know, in accordance with the rules there. But, um, you know, I, for what I wasn't allowed to do myself, I definitely worked with a mechanic. And uh, yeah, I said I was in, you know, probably four different <laughs> states, <laughs> four different airports with my airplane. And, and um, at each one, I tried to develop a relationship with the mechanic that I was using so that he would let me do as much as I felt I was comfortable with. And he'd check it out and sign it off, whatever. <laughs> But, oh, uh, yeah, the, the, the tools are big. I, most, most stuff that, the, that you might do by yourself, if you're new to airplane ownership, you can get by with some pretty basic, you know, normal hand tools that are useful in, you know, everyday life doing other types of maintenance. But, you know, there, of course, there are some specialized things that you wouldn't have. But, you know, you're, you're right. I, you know, I walk around and, you know, as I'm with different, you know, clients and you know, some of these guys have, you know, their airplane is in the hangar and the rest of the hangar is a bunch of tools that makes the outline of an airplane, <laughs> you know, <laughs> in the hangar. So, uh, yeah, you can definitely get really into the amount of tools, but uh, you're going to need at least some basic tools just to be able to do, to, to not have to call your mechanic out when something really simple, you know, happened, you know, basic, you know screwdrivers and stuff like that, of course. Yeah, and then you got to get yourself an account with uh, either Lowe's or somebody or a local hardware. Mine, I'm at Ace Hardware all the time. Uh, obviously, Bill, I think you you said there was another one, uh, Harbor Freight. I think you said is is one that you go to. But it really the tools thing grows. It's not just the little tools, uh, Russ. I I think too. I know I did when I was cleaning the plane. So I I'm not as say agile as I was. 30 years ago. So when I'm underneath the plane, I actually got myself a crawler, you know, that I can get under there and start cleaning the bottom of the plane and that type of thing. So that that's the type of tool that I bought. Also a pan, a drip pan. Uh, you know, some of our planes actually after some time start dripping uh, and some oil gets on the floor. So you, you have those type of things. Cleaners uh, for the floor, floor for the airplane. Uh, another thing that I, I found out that I needed is I had to go out and... Uh, just I had insects, insecticide. I had a real problem, uh, and I know that uh, you know Bill's probably not as kind of nervous that I'm talking about this now. But uh, I had a real big problem with black widow spiders uh, all over. I had 22 nests in my hangar when I first got in there, so I had to eradicate those, and I learned how to do that. <laughs> and the uh, and one of the things I think Sean said, yikes! <laughs> but those things hurt when you get bit by them, from what I hear. And then the, all the other things that that you have that are in the hangar that you have to make sure that you get out because uh, and they'll scare the heck out of you. I know there's a resident frog I had in my hangar, and inevitably it would when I put something down, it would jump out at me, and it would just and I would like you know scream it was like ah you know, so the, it's those little things keeping those out of the hangar uh, that are kind of uh, you know important. But all these things are expenses. I mean th these add up after a while. So um, I really saw my credit card bill went up dramatically as I started adding more and more things and got to the point where I had to say, whoa, stop. Uh, lighting is another thing too, is that a lot of times when you're working on an airplane or doing a pre-flight in the airplane, I had some problems with the lighting in my hangar. It was an automated light, so I had to buy myself a large light so that I, it would stay on while I'm in the hangar doing a pre-flight at night or putting the plane away. Uh, and then in, inevitably, of course, is the hangar rash, that type of thing. Uh, but so these are all the ancillary costs. Anybody else have ancillary? I'm trying to think of anything else that I forgot. And I'm sure if you, you have some, please you know go to the contact page on, on Stuck Mike Avcast and, and tell us something we may have missed along the way here as far as those costs are concerned. 
Another cost that I really think is something that can vary dramatically based on your airplane and what you do with your airplane. This is uh, Victoria knows a few things about this, and that's insurance. And I know that in the different uh, places and different clubs I've been in and partnerships I've been in, it varies tremendously from what I could tell on based on the pretty much the person with the least amount of hours. Uh, I guess that's kind of a general rule of thumb. Is that a good way to say that, Victoria? It is. I mean, anytime you look at aircraft insurance, you need to take in consideration the type of aircraft and the type of pilots flying it. And typically, yes, it's based on the rate is based on the lowest experience pilot. So if you're looking at, you know, a student in a Cessna 172, I can insure those all day long. But if for some reason a student wanted to learn to fly in a Lancer 4P, that would be another story. So in situations like that, you know, it's always really good, regardless of the type of plane you're flying or your experience, to contact an insurance agent to shop the market for you before you put in any offers on the aircraft, because you don't want to be surprised by the insurance, especially in the hard market um, we're in the middle of right now. You know, in saying that, Victoria, I there, there's a great example. My neighbor in the hangar, he went out and, you know, he had the money to buy a 210. So he buys it. He, he just got his private pilot, and he goes out and buys a 210. And he has not actually been able to fly that thing by himself. And it's had, he's had it for almost 12 months now. Is that something that you see often? Yes, very much so. Um, people are really excited to get flying, especially when they're a newly minted pilot. They want to get into a really cool aircraft right away. Um, but we call those transition pilots. So those can be more difficult to insure. They um, Perhaps he's probably got a large amount of dual requirement prior to solo that they want to see to just make him insurable. Um, that type of aircraft, you typically want to see a pilot with an instrument rating and some retract time. So if you don't have any of that, the underwriters are going to take in a big risk on you. So they're going to put a lot of premium and then also a lot of dual requirements on it. So that's why it's important just to, you know, shop the markets and see what rates are available before you get sucked into something that you might not be able to insure. Um, another good example, and I've been working with the Sonix community a lot to try to make this easier on them, is one seat um, Sonix, one X. And... How do you get training in a one-seat airplane? So that's another really um, important one to consider. Uh, Sonics, a pits, items like that. Interesting that you said that because uh, one of the things that I've noticed is when people do get in these airplanes, and they understand this as far as ownership is concerned, is that they, they're willing to go up with an instructor for quite some time. So uh, another part of that is making sure your instructor is able to teach you in the airplane. But... Are there any concerns about the instructor as far as the insurance is concerned? The one that, say, you just go out there looking for one. Yes. So you want to have an instructor that has experience in the aircraft that you're buying because a lot of underwriters will not allow you to just go in an airplane and get instruction from someone who has no experience or little experience in the aircraft, especially if it's something more rare. So take, for example, my Lancer. Um, example, you want to make sure that a pilot has Lance Air experience, and that can be difficult to find in a flight instructor. So you have to do a lot of research 
to get this done because an underwriter may not quote it without seeing who your intended flight instructor is. So you might be able to get insured, but you might not be able to go get your instruction until you find someone. And sometimes that involves, you know, a commute and a lot of money. So if you're somebody that's buying something, you know, get the get the instructor lined up right away. Or or maybe you don't care and it's uh, not a not a huge cost to you. Or or the airplane that you're buying seems to be just a such a low cost that uh, it doesn't matter. You're willing to pay the money on the instructor. And I've had that happen before with somebody who just I flew with them for a long time in the airplane. Um, but uh, yeah, a lot of interesting stuff as far as insurance. So, Russ, do you have any, uh, as far as in, uh, insurance in your airplane, any experiences? Well, I just wanted to comment kind of on insurance in general. And, and Victoria, please add in and, and correct me if, if the market's kind of changing. But, uh, you know, I've, as Victoria said, you know, the insurance companies want to see that the instructor who's checking out has a certain amount of, you know, you know total time and time and type and and the time and type can be really specific you know you know we look at you know some of the piper model numbers with the you know pa 32rt301t you know all the letters and stuff so in in my experience sometimes it's hard to find an instructor that has exactly that make and model experience but that may not that may not be that hard to overcome. You know, I've had good success with you know negotiating with the uh, insurance companies and the agents and, and the underwriters on um, you know here's here's the experience that the instructor has. In my case, it's me that we're talking about. But you know, here's the experience I have. You know, I I don't have the full amount of make and model experience that you want in this specific airplane, but I have some, or I have all this other similar experience, and and being able to negotiate that way is possible. And I think a lot of people uh, don't realize that because we're used to, you know, auto insurance and homeowners insurance and stuff where whatever the insurance company says is just what it is, right? You know, if they don't insure you, they just don't insure you. But it's a little bit different in in aviation insurance. And again, Victoria, if, if, if if that's changing, please let me know. No, actually, you're spot on. So, Almost every policy has what's called an open pilot warranty built into it, and that's a minimum amount of requirements and certificates the um, a potential pilot needs to have in order to fly the aircraft without um, without the underwriter permission. And a lot of times we run into the fact that the CFI might not meet all those requirements. So there's usually a total time and a make and model time requirements, and also like many times people are short on that make and model time. A really good example would be um, the RV series of aircraft, Vans RV. So a flight instructor might have tons of RV4 time and only one or two hours of RV7 time. But if we tell the underwriter, like, look at all this experience this individual has and all these different models of RVs, usually they'll say, oh, that's no problem they can provide the dual instruction in the RV7 because of your RV4, RV5, RV6 time. So there's always ways to work around that. And then if you're talking about, you know, Cessna 172s, um, the various versions of Piper Cherokees, those are very interchangeable. Whether it's, you know, an MNOP model. So the instructor, it's important to have time in the in that type of aircraft, but... If you're if you're bringing on an instructor, is so me as an owner, 
should I have a discussion with that instructor about what insurance they're carrying also, Victoria? Yeah, so there is um, insurance to protect the CFI themselves. Um, and it's typically you just call it CFI insurance. It's non-owned insurance, which is um, that has an added endorsement to protect the flight instructor while providing instruction. And it also provides um, li uh, liability protection for negligent instruction. But just keep in mind whether a pilot is providing you instruction or just flying your aircraft for fun, if they have a non-owned policy, CFI or otherwise, it's secondary to the policy on your aircraft. And it's for um, if they're actually being held liable. So think like pilot error. It's your fault you had a prop strike, but it's not your fault, the CFI's fault in this example, that there was um, a bird strike. You didn't intend to hit the bird. You didn't. It wasn't pilot error that caused you to hit the bird, but something like pilot error from a prop strike would be where the non-owned policy comes into play. So your aircraft policy is always primary. The non-owned policy is secondary. And that's for instructors. Now, what if you talked about this open pilot policy, which I thought was kind of interesting when I first found out about it a few years ago. I can like let's pretend I have a Cessna 172, and I then have a friend that has their private pilot, and maybe they have their instrument. I could literally say my policy says that they have to have a minimum of a private pilot. I could literally just give them the keys to the airplane. Is that correct? And let them go fly. Yep. Yeah. If I came to visit you, I could go fly your Cessna 172 because I qualify under the open pilot warranty. However. If you're smart, I would just, you know, check their logbook, check their recency, and maybe go up with them once so they get familiar with your specific aircraft. Even though the open pilot warranty says it's okay and legal per your insurance requirements, you know, you still want to make sure that when you give your keys to someone that you're giving it to someone trustworthy and, you know, current and re refreshed to fly. Yeah, we're, we're going to go over some of the challenges of ownership when we talk about that as far as the open pilot policy. I have a, a quite a bit of experience there. But is there anything else in insurance that we – I know we covered a lot here as far as uh, the true real cost of ownership. Is there anything else I'm trying to think of as far as insurance is concerned that we might want to be concerned with? What other costs well, as far as ownership? Yeah, the other thing I would like to mention would be um, training and not just training for like – hey, I bought a Piper Cherokee that I don't have experience in. I have to do a couple hours dual. I'm talking if you're going up into a pressurized aircraft, some of the um, some turbine aircraft, items like that, you're going to be required to do some um, formal manufacturer's flight training, initial training, and then annual training thereafter. So that's a cost to think about when you purchase aircraft that you're going to have to go down to Simcom every year and take a couple days worth of training and show your insurance company that you've been doing this on the regular. You know, I'm glad you brought that up because um, my one of my neighbors in the hangar uh, was actually an owner of a Cirrus and then they had to go do some Cirrus recurrent training. So you, they also had to go out and I think find a CSIP, I think. It's, is that correct to do that actual training? Uh, most serious policies are requiring you to get your instruction through a CSIP these days. 
Right, and that's the Cirrus certified instructor pilots that um, there's not that many of them out there, so you have to kind of search for them. And uh, it's really, it's important though, I find in general to do some training with somebody in an airplane that they know really well and having a CSIP is a great example of that. The other thing too is if you have a twin, let's talk a little bit about that. Uh, I really think it's very beneficial for people to not just do the minimum, but get out there as much as you can and, and train with somebody as far as that's concerned. I think a lot of people are under the impression there's no way they can own a twin because of the insurance, but I, you know, I've heard that quite a few times lately, so I kind of want to address that as far as insurance is concerned. What advice, Victoria, would you give to somebody who's thinking about stepping up to a twin? Um, my advice usually is just training, training, training. You know, I... I work with a lot of pilots that might go from straight from private pilot direct to a multi-engine rating, but I say it best when you can is just get a few hours under your belt, private pilot in a single engine aircraft, work your way up to your instrument, and then get your multi. And, you know, be careful. Don't go right into, you know, a pressurized 310. You know, start with a Seneca. You know, work your way up to something bigger and better because the price is always always going to increasingly more and you're going to have more training required of you so it's it's more fun not more fun i mean it's more fun to always go in a bigger airplane but it just makes more sense to transition slowly and you'll see you'll get used to those slow increment increases in your insurance versus going from a thousand dollar 172 policy to several thousand dollars policy for your multi-engine plus adding on the annual training you'll have to do. There's a lot of good information about insurance, Victoria. And if people have questions, obviously, you can write to us uh, at Stuck Mike Avcast, the contact page, or, you know, they can contact you directly. Really, you know, it sometimes raises more questions, and everybody has kind of these very unique situations, uh, whether it be, you know, through the different type of airplane, or it might be something uh, like a special situation, medical, et cetera. So uh, some really good stuff. So, th Victoria, this has been awesome, uh, the information about the insurance. So I appreciate you, your input on that you know let's move on to i know we're talking a lot about costs but there and i think what's happening is there might be some people listening right now that are kind of getting afraid and, and and scared away from the ownership or maybe this doesn't scare anybody but there's a lot of benefits a lot of benefits to actually owning an airplane and i i'd like to hear everybody else's you know big items that they like as far as owning the airplane one of the things that i really like and uh i am Ask my wife, they, you know, I'm not really the big neat freak, but when it comes to the airplane, it's kind of funny. I switch gears and I just love showing up to an airplane that's clean and, you know, kind of clean on the outside and that type of thing. And, you know, basically showing up to a plane that you can have pride in and having clean windows, clean windows. Oh my gosh, that is like the ultimate compared to going out to say a, a rental fleet and that type of thing. And, and just having an airplane where people haven't they haven't moved your stuff, you know, if you're in an ownership, a co-ownership, that might be different. But that's that's incredibly important. What other things, uh, as far as ownership, for from other people here that have actually been partners or owners in airplanes, what are some of your favorite things? I guess I'll start with Russ. What what do you, if you were to name like the the top thing as far as owning, and maybe one, two, or three? What are your favorite things about owning an airplane? Never having to unplug my headset, I think. 
Yeah, well, it's in the general category. Uh, you mentioned, you know, no one moves your stuff. I mean, you know, I, I owned the airplane, you know, by myself. It wasn't a partnership or anything. And, you know, so my headset lived in the airplane. I didn't have to carry it back and forth. You know, I didn't, I didn't forget to take it to the airport. You know, my, you know, my fuel strainer, my, you know, my other different things were always in the airplane exactly where I left them before. Right. And so, so I, I didn't even, I don't even think I had a flight bag of any sort because it was all an airplane, you know? Um, and that's, that's, that's an intangible, but it's really, really nice. <laughs> you know, now that I don't own an airplane anymore and, you know, as a CFI, I'm in a lot of other airplanes. I never know where anything is, you know, I, I carry everything with me and that kind of thing. So, so it's really nice. Um, the, the other thing that I, I really enjoyed was just knowing and being very comfortable with that particular airplane. I mean, when you own anything for, like I said, for, it was 11 years for me, uh, you know, how it handles, how it performs, what exactly it can do, uh, you know, how to, you know, how to put the airplane exactly where you want. And in that type of comfort level, uh, with the handling and performance and all that kind of thing just comes with time. And, and if the, only thing you're flying, I, mean, I have pages and pages in my logbook that are the same airplane for months and months and months. I think there was, you know, a period of, you know, a year or so where I didn't fly anything else, but, but my airplane, you get very comfortable and very, hopefully if you're doing it right, you know, very, uh, skilled in, in that one airplane. And, and that's, that's really nice feeling. You know, when I, and I sold mine and, and I started, you know, flying different airplanes, I was like, I didn't have that same level of comfort that was there because I didn't have all the experience that I had in mind. That that comfort also comes from a real intimate knowledge of the airplane, like you were talking about, and the noises, everything, right? I mean, you know when something's not right because you can hear it. And uh, oh, abs- absolutely, yeah. <laughs> that's that's a big part of ownership, or you know, any type of airplane that you fly all the time, you can actually feel the difference. You can you can hear the difference, that type of thing, and that's really something that's will prevent some other failure later on down down the road. That's for sure. And so other benefits as far as the airplane ownership is, and I, Bill, I know you're the other person that's actually had an, a, a strict ownership of an airplane. What benefits do you feel, other than some of the ones we listed, is there anything else you can think of? Yeah, Russ had great points there, but um, one other that I thought of too is is just the scheduling, right? You know that you don't have to get it back for the next person. Nobody's looking over your shoulder when you need to be there, which is, it's, it's nice. It's comfortable. Um, in a lot of ways too, it also gets that, uh, you know, that sort of get home itis or get their itis off your back too. You know, you know, there's nobody tapping their foot waiting for you to get back. So you just, you're going to get there when you get there. And that's, that's pretty nice. It is nice to not have to worry. Uh, that actually, and that probably should have been on my list. I love that. I mean, just, you know, think about this. When you go, I haven't rented a plane. Actually, Billy, that was the first experience I've had in renting a plane in many, many years. And we went to an FBO, and we only had the plane for two hours, a two-hour block. And I haven't experienced that in in ages, you know. And it's kind of strange, you know, just realizing, hey, i got to get this plane back. And what if I'm late? And i got to get somebody else mad at me. So that type of thing is just so relaxing, just saying, hey, we're going to go to Sebring and get some breakfast, and after breakfast, you know what, let's not go back, let's go do something else and circle around and look at stuff. Uh, just, I think the word that I used a lot, and I always have with 
as far as flying is the freedom. I mean, there's such freedom in the airplane when you're flying through the air, but it's also the freedom when you own it and knowing you never have to come back. Uh, well, I guess you got to put gas in the plane, but you know, other than getting gas in the plane, you never have to come down. Uh, you can stay up there all day and just play with the airplane. That's that's one of the most exciting things I think in the world, and uh, I can't wait till the till the next airplane. That's for sure. But along with the ownership, and is there any other benefits to ownership? If anybody else has, you know, please interrupt me. But I, I know those are some of the, they seem like small things, but it's also uh, pretty big. The other big thing, uh, and this also is a challenge of ownership, is avionics. That is one of the cool things of owning your own airplane. You can do whatever you want. If you want to put $100,000 of avionics in your panel, go and do it. You know, if you want to put in 10,000, you can, but that's such a, uh, a neat thing, especially now with the advances in avionics and all the different devices out there that we can put in there. And, uh, it really, really is a cool thing to have the ability to change things in an airplane because it's yours. It's, you don't have to ask anybody else. That's, that's awesome. Uh, and then there's other side benefits. Uh, I think Bill, you had a, a comment as far as the, the other cool benefit to, to owning an airplane of course is, well, of course, you impress people at dinner parties. <laughs> <laughs> so, so how did you get here? I, 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 I came in my airplane. <laughs> that's right. <laughs> so, and, and, I'm not. I'm not quite sure that's worth it. But you know, no, no, definitely not. But the stroke of your own egos, that type of thing. But, uh, but yes, it does add to the conversation, and you do wind up uh, talking quite a bit about airplanes. That's for sure. We all do anyway. Um, so other things as far as challenges in ownership, I'm, and other, I'm not talking just the costs. Uh, it's other challenges. Obviously, the cost of maintenance and the payments, those are challenges you have to meet every month. Uh, if you buy a plane that's uh, less expensive, then that's a, a great way to save on that, that those days where you're just worried about money. I know there was a gentleman that has uh, – I'm, I'm going to mess up the podcast name, but he has a maintenance podcast, and he talks about – the fact that if you can afford a $100,000 airplane, maybe you should buy a $50,000 airplane. You'll never really have to worry too much about the maintenance and the payments and that type of thing. And I thought that was kind of a good idea is maybe going halfway you know, to the point or bring on a partner. But the maintenance part of it, other than the cost of maintenance, there's other challenges there because – when you own the airplane, I know like with a couple of planes I've had, I've had to go into the logbooks or if you're partners, make sure there's one person that knows exactly what's what they have to put in the logbook and they're in charge of maintenance. When you have that plane, uh, and this is really important, you need to keep the logbooks up to date. Uh, and your operating handbooks, and if there's any changes made, you have to make sure at all times everything is legal. The little things I include in maintenance as far as updating your database, too. That's one of the challenges I've had. As a matter of fact, when I was in a partnership, the one partner had another airplane and decided to pull out the memory card from our, I think it was a 430 that we had at the time, and put it into their airplane and uh, because they had a flight that they had to, to, had to do. I was like, wow, you know, that those are the kind of challenges you have. So even though uh, it's a partnership or an ownership and you never would imagine someone doing that, it's still very important to go through all your checklists. And that is also a challenge. It's, the challenge is actually knowing your airplane too well sometimes as we gloss over things like that, like looking at the database, making sure the database is up to date, making sure no one has swapped the card out, making sure everything's in the airplane. Uh, sometimes we see past things. We don't see what's actually there. And obviously some of the, the payments and that type of thing. The other challenge is that, that I've seen with a airplane ownership is hangar rash. Hangar rash, I... 
guess is one of those really big annoyances, but it also is important to get things checked because you don't know what actually happened with the airplane. So that's a that's a big challenge. You don't know how hard that force was when you hit the side of the airplane, say, when you're putting it back in the hangar. Anybody else have other challenges as far as, you know, Russ or Bill that you had when you were on the airplane? Any, any uh, challenges you may think of other than the ones I've listed? Maybe I've hit, hit them all. I think, well, I, think I mean, you kind of hit upon the maintenance aspect. I mean, you have to be on, you know, on top of that stuff. And, and you know, one of the, one of the challenges, you know, you, you get out there and you start it up and realize you're, I don't know, your alternator isn't charging or something, right? Well, then the airplane's not going to fly again until you, you know, find someone to work on that and, and fix the problem, right? You know, after I sold my, my airplane, uh, I joined a flying club locally. And and the first time I had a problem with it, I realized, man, this is great. You know, I just call the maintenance officer and I go home, <laughs> you know. It's, oh, the alternator's out, Bob. Oh, okay, well, uh, you know, I go home. So, uh so there is there is that, and you really have to stay on top of that. That's one of the big challenges is maintenance, and then and you know we're all trying to be cost conscious, so you know trying to make sure okay, well you know I need a, a new alternator. You know, is the mechanic going to just find the you know the one from his usual source, or is there a cheaper place, or you know all these kind of things you need to you really need to kind of think of. So, Bill, what other ideas as far as uh, challenges and maintenance? Or well, challenges. Kind of, well, kind of piggybacking on the maintenance. I, I'm not so sure if it's a challenge, but it's a question, and I, I don't really know the answer to it. But um, we know about uh, maintaining a maintenance reserve for your airplane, right? If you're going to you know, keep your airplane, you want to be salting some money. I mean, unless you're, you know, just, you know, like Scrooge McDuck with a big pile of money, you're going to be putting away a little bit of money against, uh, you know, reserve for an engine overhaul or, or something big like that. Um, and I've heard of uh, cases where people have, um, you know, they want to become a professional pilot, got to build up the time. Um, is it worth it, you know, looking at that uh, to play against the maintenance reserve to buy an airplane that's maybe, you know, half-life, halfway through TBO, something like that, you know, a Cherokee or a Cessna or something, not terribly expensive, and then just run it out to build the hours. Buy the airplane, fly it for hundreds of hours, don't worry about the maintenance reserve, and then sell it at the end. It, is that worth it? Yeah, that's a that's another question as far as the maintenance and and the TBO and that type of thing. You know, it's mm-hmm. we definitely have to look at that. And you know, I love the Scrooge McDuck. That was pretty cool. But uh, putting enough money away, it's very practical. Um, oh, another thing too is you know I've seen this happen a wings bar. Maybe there's some maintenance that has to be done or a replacement of wings bar. Boom, that's quite an expense right there. Uh, you could get hit with an AD that yeah. just comes out of the blue. <laughs> I mean, yeah, yeah, that's for sure. That is for sure. Well, these are all some of the great things about owning and some of the challenges. But let's come up with some other options as far as uh, ownership is concerned because you can actually get the feeling of ownership without actually owning an airplane. And there's many different ways: clubs, partnerships. We've talked about the sole ownership. Uh, there's also leasebacks. Both you can lease a plane to somebody or have one leased to you. There's another creative thing you can do, basically almost like renting it. Um, clubs. I've been in clubs. I've been in partnerships. There's there's good and there's bad about those things because when you go into a partnership, if it's one other person, your costs have gone down in half. Uh, but also you actually have a little bit of coordinating to do. You have to schedule the airplane now. And there's many creative ways to actually feel like an owner, even if you're in a partnership. And one of the partnerships that I was in, like in the 182, 
we had six shares, and each share was a week in the airplane. So if you own three shares, you got the plane for three weeks, and you scheduled it a week at a time. So basically, you owned it for that week. And what was interesting is that I actually lived in a city not where the plane was, and I would take the plane to my city. I was, you know, in St. Pete, and the plane was in Tampa. So I would just fly it over there. And it was a great way to get together with some of the other owners. Like then the day that it was, uh, or the week, or two weeks, that it was mine is to come fly it over to St. Pete, and we could have lunch and that type of thing. The cool thing about clubs, though, and partnerships, and, as opposed to sole ownership, is what you just said, Bill, is the maintenance, and, and Russ, as far as the maintenance officer, just kind of saying, hey, here, uh, this broke. I'm sending you a, a text message, an email, whatever. Fix it, you know, and, and that's actually really cool. The downside to that is sometimes you don't get notified about a maintenance issue if you're in an ownership or a partnership. Every so often that happens, a breakdown in communications, uh, but you sometimes show up with the airplane is not ready to go. Uh, it could be the same way with a sole ownership, too. If you get to the airplane, something's broken, obviously, but it can be disappointing sometimes, and that happens. It, it's th Those are some of, the, some of the challenges there, but it sure is great to be a part of a club because you get so many benefits as far as you know being able to enjoy the flying and also the camaraderie uh, with other people, that's for sure. Um, the other thing that... I look at as leasebacks. A lot of folks ask about those. Those can be, as far as owning the airplane, leasing back to school. It's great, uh, except some you're letting other people fly your airplane, and it doesn't have a lot of those benefits we talked about. And I've seen a lot of people get disappointed when they lease a plane back to the flight school. And uh, you know, having worked at a bunch of different flight schools, I see it happen over and over again where they realize, oh my gosh, this isn't like me owning it. Now I have, you know, gum wrappers in the plane and, you know, people's books and empty Coke cans and that kind of thing. Uh, so that really is one of the downsides to leasing. But it is another, you know, option. It can actually pay for some of your ratings and that type of thing. So that's that's really other that's really important. The other thing that is really cool is flying other people's airplanes. And when you get to know a lot of people around the airport and you hang out a lot, sometimes people say, hey, listen, I'm not flying a lot. Here's the keys. You know, I, I say I got rid of my airplane, but I actually have the keys to a Mooney and a hangar where I can just go in there and, and, and you know, fly the thing. And it's actually, it's terrific. It's wonderful to have that type of thing. And that is probably one of the best situations where the only cost to you is the gas. Uh, and if you can get that situation, it's, it's awesome. And the other big one I find is really cool, and a lot of people here are CFIs, is get your CFI and start teaching in other people's airplanes. And actually, I'd like to hear from Sean, because I think Sean's the, the newest CFI here, as far as have you been able to have that experience yet? And, um, and are you trying to kind of get to that point where you, you have friends with airplanes and say, hey, listen, I'll, I'll do your flight review or if you let me you know, use it for a couple hours? I haven't yet, but I definitely look forward to that opportunity. I mean, it's the the vast majority of my time is in the the Cessna 172, which I love. It's a it's a great airplane. Um, but yeah, I mean, you certainly after that much time in one airplane, start getting the itch to to check out other things. And um, it's one of those things that you guys talk about is is for sure one of the benefits of being a CFI and knowing people with cool airplanes is like I say, you need a flight review. Uh, let me get some time in that one, and, and everybody goes home happy. 
So when you have become that CFI and you start giving these flight reviews and things like that, and you're teaching another people's airplanes, it is nice to have that benefit where they'll you know throw you the keys and that type of thing. Um, but one of the the really cool things is the fact that we just absolutely get to share our passion for aviation. So maybe it is time to uh, do that. You know, if you really want to go and get your CFI. This is the time to go forward and, and actually think about, hey, I could actually share my passion with aviation, especially if you're someone that loves to share that passion, that's for sure. But uh, anyway, the as far as us becoming CFIs, I think it's it's really something that I think is terrific. Uh, it's a, our way of showing that we really enjoy that and bringing it to the next level. Uh, and it is a great play, way to get into other folks' airplanes, that's for sure. The last one on that list, though, is, uh, is renting a plane. And... You know, it doesn't seem very creative, but there are places out there that I feel do such a great job in their rental fleets. And I've seen a few schools, uh, you know, I won't mention them, but I almost felt like I was an owner in the airplane because of the way they treated me and the way they treated the airplane. And I know, uh, Rick, when you got started in, in your flying, you did a lot of work with videos and putting all this equipment inside the videos. It's almost it almost when I saw those videos, I felt like you felt you were the owner of that aircraft. And I was wondering, did you any yeah. at any time think about owning, or was it strictly going to be a rental from your point of view? Yeah, well, I, I should talk on the, the first part of that is interesting because I did that was a, a lease back to the to the school the the Cirrus was, and. Um, I ran into the owner several times, and I, I do remember at one point saying to him, you know, thanking him, great plane, love it, and and saying, just so you know, when I when I go to that plane, I'm treating it like it's mine because it's because for a lot of reasons, <laughs> it's just smart and it's it was a great plane, and I really did get to know it, and and I so I actually said I actually said those words to him, um, yeah, no, I didn't, you know, I did for a while when I was doing it, I uh, that and and the Cessna I was in, I started to occasionally think through the math of. I mean, you guys can talk, speak to this too if you want, but <clears throat> the math, you know, of, of renting versus owning, and at what point, uh, how often do you have to fly? Was kind of the question I was trying to answer, you know, uh, with some with some back of the envelope calculations, and uh, you know, and my and my thought at the time was I won't fly enough um, unless I'm in a partnership with somebody and can reduce the cost that way, and I never really got very far with that. I mean, I I do have some some guys I know who. You know, who talk a lot about the idea of the investment, you know, that that depending on the plane, it's like anything you you invest money in and use. If you keep it in good shape, you know, you'll get some of that money back out of it. Um, but uh, but <laughs> the laundry list of extra costs that we just went through is a good reminder that it's not just about the purchase price. So, no, I, I never went beyond renting and never and never really got to a point of thinking that would work for me, mostly because I was pretty casual flyer. So when you were at the FBO, did you ever hear those rules of thumb that people tell you as far as when it's time to actually own one? Uh, you know, I don't remember what they were, but there was certainly a. I, I think it came down to how often are you going to use it? You know, do you have, can you build that into your life and do you want to in such a way that you will use it enough to make it cost effective other uh, you know otherwise renting a, a plane once a month if you're going to fly once a month and you're going to do a little weekend hop to you know to get a hamburger it's you know there's no reason to own 
Yeah, no, I agree on that one. But the uh, there is a some people have rules of thumb. Some people say it's five hours a month. Some people say ten hours oh. a month. Uh, yeah, but I don't but, remember the number. But. Yeah, and everybody comes up with these different numbers. I'd love to hear what other people, uh, you know, uh, hear as far as the co-hosts are concerned, as far as what they feel I mean, the, num- the break-even point I, is. I mean, I assume it's based also on what what are you what are you paying what to you, rent, exactly, you know, and yeah. and if you're you know like in in my case for a while I was renting, a, learning in a Cirrus, and that was a little more expensive than the Cessna. I think I don't remember the numbers. I'm sure it was, but um, but that one that drove the number of flights up just based on the on the price, you know. Sure, and when you're renting, say, uh, an aerobatic plane, uh, whether it's an extra or you know a Cap 10B, I used to rent a lot. Those are the type of things you look at the the cost of ownership, and there's a huge difference in those two as far as ownership is concerned. So those, that really is true. You got to look at the actual cost of the aircraft and how much you're actually going to be using it. Same thing with any, and I like to call those like specialty aircraft, if you're into warbirds or whatever, is, you know, if you are looking at owning something and say it's a warbird, that may be the only way to be able to fly that. So, you know, that might be the option is to actually own that aircraft. So so instead of actually renting that plane, and if you're going to go out and fly a warbird every so often, there's lots of opportunities to go rent one and go up with an instructor. You know, that's a, a really, really cool thing. Also, uh, a big thing is seaplanes. I know, uh, Victoria, you guys do a lot with seaplanes. And uh, obviously, we go to up to, uh, what was that, the event that we went up in Tavares there, Seaplane Apalooza. <laughs> Thank you for reminding of that. Those you can actually, you can rent seaplanes, right? You can actually become a member uh, there and also in some other places. I don't think um, Jones Brothers has the club anymore, but um, sometimes you can rent a seaplane in club format, but most of the time you cannot hop up to a flight school and rent and, and And he agrees with you, too, as far as that's concerned. <laughs> it says, no, no, no. Makes an appearance. <laughs> um, I was just going to say, you can't go up to any old school and rent a seaplane, even if you have experience in it. Most of the time, they're only for dual instruction only. Be quiet. <laughs> <laughs> and again, Turbo agrees with that. Actually, we have the seaplane club that's next to me near the hangar is uh, actually, I think it's 10 hours, no matter what, as far as experience is concerned. So another thing you can do, get involved in the club that allows you to go up solo and, and quote unquote, rent the plane, but you're going to have to fly off a bunch of hours uh, in that aircraft. We have uh, two sea rays that are right near us. So there's all these different options. Uh, renting is a great option. And the ability to actually fly many different aircraft, I think, is terrific there. Uh, as far as you know, getting into things like uh, DA40, you know, DA42, it's all sorts of things that you you may not want to purchase outright and try it out and try before you buy kind of thing and enjoy all different types. And that's another benefit to renting is you get to play with all sorts of different airplanes. Uh, same thing with you know going out in other people's airplanes. But uh, this has like been a great discussion as as far as you know what the different ways and creative ways of quote unquote owning an airplane, feeling like you're an owner, and some of the costs and the real costs of ownership. Uh, hopefully we've covered everything. The only thing that I really wanted to talk about a little bit is here's at the end, like knowing when to let go, knowing when, when it's time to move on to the next airplane. And a lot of times you will know, I know uh, I just went through this process with my friend. Uh, I gave up my hangar about the same time that they gave up theirs. 
and he had a little bird dog that he was getting rid of, and we hung out for like a day talking about it. And he knew it was time. Uh, you know, he just finished 54 years of flying, and he said, "You know what? I just I'll go up with friends of mine and go fly." For me, it was uh, dis, you know dispatch reliability. There's some some event usually that actually tells you when uh, that is time to hang up and actually sell the airplane. Um, you know, Russ, where, where, what, why did you get rid of your airplane? I guess maybe you can give us, walk us through that. Yeah, it, it was, it was a few years after I became a flight instructor. So I had owned the airplane for, I don't know, seven or eight years before I became a CFI and then kept it for a few years afterwards. And as it, it just turned out, I wasn't flying it very much. You know, I was flying a lot. It was all doing flight instruction in other people's airplanes. I wasn't doing any instruction in mine. So, uh, it was that well, was sitting there, right? And and to be honest, it was for me. It was just a usage thing, and I didn't want it to become one of those airplanes that you see at every airport all across the U.S. You know, with flat tires and you know cobwebs and all that kind of thing. And and you know, I'd looked at you know the last I think the last year I owned it, I flew like thirty hours or something like that in that airplane. But you know, two hundred and fifty or three hundred total. So it would just it wasn't get enough use. So I figured, well, you know, it's it's t- obviously time, you know, to to send it on to another home. And uh, and a, a guy bought it and he flew it for a couple of years, and it's now been sold three more times in the last five years. So <laughs> so I'm I'm glad people are are getting use and uh, and, and moving up. You have to know when it's time to say goodbye, and that's uh, that's yeah. a good example right there. That's where we use the example of being able to fly, uh, you know, jumping into your CFI. That also can be a detriment to your own ownership, can it? <laughs> so you're not flying. Well, I, yeah, I don't know if I'd use the word detriment, but <laughs> but yes, your, your point is valid. That you know, I I didn't have any time to just go fly myself, nor did I really want to. You know, I was flying so much. Right, right. Well, guys, it's been a great discussion, and uh, I really would love to hear some feedback from our listeners uh, here at Stuck Mike Avcast, stuckmikeavcast at gmail.com, or just hit the contact page if you have any other experiences you want to share with us. Our Picks of the Week. So today, let's look at our Picks of the Week. We have some really interesting Picks of the Week, and I'm going to start off because of the fact that uh, this was a really topic near and dear to my heart. I know I've talked about this before. It's actually a book, so uh, I know that I'm preempting Russ on this one, but it's the one by Mike Bush, and it's the Airplane Ownership, the first volume. It talks about what every aircraft owner needs to know about, you know, Getting an airplane, selecting the plane, ensuring, maintaining, troubleshooting, everything about flying a light plane. Really good stuff out there. I've talked to uh, quite a few other owners who've read the book and have been even partners with people in airplanes that have told them to go towards this book and have saved a bunch of money on owning that airplane. Or if they haven't saved money, they've actually saved some, saved their hide because they've you know recognized some maintenance issues before they became a real big problem. So he is a great uh, person to learn from as far as maintenance is concerned, and a great volume, volume one, very simple or complex topics made simple, and that's really important. Next person is Victoria. What is your pick of the week? Uh, my pick of the week because of our topic today about um, buying an aircraft and aircraft ownership. So if you're buying or selling an aircraft, a really good product is the Aircraft Blue Book. So you can find out what the aircraft you are selling or looking at purchasing is really worth um, when you take into account engine time, airframe time, avionics, and stuff like that. It's not a substitute for appraisal, but it can get you pretty darn close. 
And um, I do that over at my work at Aviation Insurance Resources. And there's even a form you can fill out online that um, you can submit to us and we can send you evaluation and it's absolutely free. How long does it take usually to do that, by the way? Um, sometimes the search functions are kind of hard if you have a lot of avionics that are, especially if they're new ones that need to be put in the valuation. But, um, you know, from the second I get the form, I can get turnaround within, you know, 10 minutes or so if I see it right away. Awesome. Awesome. I do it on the phone with you. That's cool. That's awesome. All right. So aircraft blue book valuation. Thanks for that uh, pick of the week, Victoria. And also, by the way, all the information about the insurance. That was awesome. So, Bill, what is your pick of the week? Well, mine doesn't have anything to do with aircraft ownership. I mean, I guess it does because somebody owns the air, airplanes. <laughs> um, and it's uh, the Flying Circus Air Show, which is pretty much what it sounds like. It's in uh, in Virginia, Warren, uh, near Warrenton, Virginia. There is this little tiny grass strip that uh, has been shut down uh, for the season and then for, you know, COVID and all that, uh, coming back this weekend, and the Flying Circus Air Show does a real old-fashioned 1920s-style barnstorming show with uh, actual antique aircraft from that era. They sometimes have balloons and antique cars. Um, it's like a state fair with uh, with old airplanes. Uh, they're starting up again this weekend. It's Warrenton, Virginia, Flying Circus Air Show. Actually, I think the real name of the town is Bealton, Virginia, about um, maybe an hour and a half west of D.C., yeah, great little town, uh, just in Warrington the other day, and I can't wait for the Flying Circus to open up. Bill and I will have to go check that out. So flyingcircusairshow.com. That's cool. Thanks, Bill. Russ, what is your pick of the week? Well, I've been to the Flying Circus Air Show, and, and Bill's right. It is is a lot of fun. I mean, it's it's an air show all of old airplanes, and it's fantastic. They put on a great act out there. Definitely go check that out. So I'll second <laughs> Bill's uh, pick of the week. But so, yeah, my pick of the week, uh, you know, on the last episode, we talked about how a lot of the books I've been reading, you know, may not be very easily available. And well, what the listeners don't know is we're recording this episode, which comes out a month after the last one I was on about what, four days <laughs> a week, maybe since we, since the last one. So I haven't had a whole lot of time to read a whole lot more books. But I did want to point out that um, a lot of the books I do read um, are on, I read them on a Kindle uh, and they're, you know, eBooks and such. And a, a great place I found for all kinds of aviation books is Kindle Unlimited. If you're, if you like eBooks or you've got, you know, you read them on your phone or on your iPad or on an actual, uh, I guess this would be a, specifically a Kindle reader, uh, the on Amazon.com, the the Kindle Unlimited, uh, it is a subscription, a certain amount per month, uh, but they have. I just did a search for you know aviation and it returned you know something like a thousand books with aviation somehow in the title and flying was like fifty thousand books. I mean, so you know anything from uh, you know fiction and nonfiction, educational, you know historical stuff, even like aviation romance you know and comedy and stuff so so all kinds of stuff these are these are regular books you know they're not like made for kindle or something like that they're regular books regular authors who you know choose to choose to put them up there and uh with the subscription you read as many books as you want but the uh the nice thing is they're they're always offering a free trial for a certain amount of time i can't see what that current offer is (laughs) because i already used mine but um but so, yeah, if you read any ebooks at all, go check it out. Check out the free trial. And, 
and and look at what they have to offer. Tons, like I said, of of aviation books on there, and I have very much enjoyed it, as you all know. A lifetime of reading, that's for sure, it sounds like. <laughs> so thanks for that pick of the week. Awesome, Russ. And now moving on to Sean. Sean, what is your pick of the week? Mine is a, an aerial cinematography outfit that I, it looks like they're based out of France called Airborne Films. Um, it looks like they've been around, but I didn't know about this until someone tagged me on Facebook a couple of days ago, and I spent the next like 20 minutes just drooling over their showreel. Um, but they do all kinds of aerial uh, videography, everything from uh, airliners to military jets to general aviation. They've even uh, got the uh, jetpack guy flying in formation in some of these. And this is some of the most beautiful uh, aerial video I've ever seen. Um, it's airborne with an E on the end, airbornefilms.com. And they've got a couple of showreels on here that if you've got a few minutes to waste and you want to see some uh, some just crazy beautiful aviation goodness, then it's right there for you. Airbornefilms.com. Thanks, Sean, for that one. And uh, last but not least, Rick, what is your pick of the week? Yeah, um, I was thinking about this. I haven't been on the show in a while. As we record this, we're sort of at some phase of the uh, of the COVID quarantine uh, situation, um, and I've been pretty much spending a lot of my time in the last few months homeschooling uh, or being part of schooling my my son, who's in fifth grade, and. That's been, you know, quite an adventure on a number of fronts. I'm much better with fractions than I was about three months ago. Um, but uh, I've, I've, I've learned to appreciate, if I didn't before, teachers and what they do and how hard it is and how important it is. And so then I thought about that and I thought about flying and I thought, well, it would be just a great, you know, a great thing to at least to do a tip of the cap to cap to a um, very popular program that everyone knows about and I, I'm sure is basically Young Eagles. And to remind people that's out there, I'm sure they're not doing it right now, but as things open up, I'm sure that will start to happen again. And it's a great it's a great way to get kids into, um, into flying. My stepdaughter, uh, years ago, um, we gave her a ride in a, sort of an open cockpit biplane and one summer. And she, so fast forward a couple of years, bunch of years, she uh, got our license. And it was all from that flight. And so I know that it works that way. And, and it's, it's a good way to, to teach kids something else about, uh, about the world, and in this case, aviation. So that's what I wanted to mention. Outstanding pick of the week, the Young Eagles. I'm so glad you mentioned that. And, you know, the person that actually, you know, formed this podcast, Len Costa, that's how he got into flying, a Young Eagles flight. Uh, it does make a huge difference in people's lives. So thanks so much for doing that. You know, all these show notes and the picks of the week and all the links that we mentioned there, you can easily find them in the show notes, also past episodes, and all of our picks of the weeks are in one of the columns on the website there. We have tons of them, all the books that we mentioned, etc. So I really highly recommend you going out there and checking out some of those. If you have any questions, also any comments, please send them to us, stuckmikeavcast at gmail.com, also our contact page. Don't forget to visit our sponsor, plainenglishsim.com, the app-based aviation radio simulator well from myself and rick felty victoria newville bill english and sean moody and russ rosleski safe flying out there we'll talk to you next episode why well, i can't wait to get back into a air, new airplane you've been listening to the stuck mike abcast 
Members of the Stock Mike Avcast may receive compensation for products or services mentioned during the podcast. Compensation may be received in the form of, but not limited to, referral commissions, free products or service trials. Our opinions and views are never influenced by any compensation, and you should always perform your own due diligence before purchasing any products or services mentioned during the show. The Stuck Mike Avcast is an aviation podcast and a Valeri Aviation Corporation production.